Chapter 10 of Daylight Land by W. H. H. Murray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 10 Banff. There was a sound of revelry by night. On the northeast side of Scotland, if you look at your maps, gentlemen, said the judge, you will find this name of Banff. To tell you the story of its transplanting would be to give you the history of a life, a life which began there, and being removed here developed into one of the strongest personalities of the continent. The once poor boy at Banff has since become one of the chief forces of this western world. No higher compliment could be paid him than to give this magnificent location the name of his birthplace. No one who knows the modesty and greatness of the man, and the services he has done to this country, will say that the compliment is excessive. There is no reward too great, exclaimed Mr. Pepperell. There is no reward too great for a man whose faith and courage have opened up such a country as this to civilization. Such a man has enlarged the opportunity of human effort, and made happy and prosperous homes possible to millions. We were standing at the celebrated Sulphur Spring at the time, one of the many natural curiosities which make this location famous. There were only four of us left, the judge, Mr. Pepperell, the man from New Hampshire, and myself. We were all old travelers, and saw that in Banff alone we had a good week's entertainment, without going beyond it a rod. This water smells bad enough to cure a man, that is, if he was very sick, said the New Hampshire man quietly as he lifted a cup of the heavily tinctured water to his nose. I know a man who left his lameness in that spring, said the judge reflectively. It may be that is what I smell, added the man from New Hampshire laconically. By the time we had passed through the tunnel that has been bored into the ledge, in the center of which nature had allowed that strange cavern from whose bottom boil the waters of healing. At that time, continued the judge, ignoring as not worthy his attention the facetious remark of our companion, at that time this passage had not been excavated, and the only way to reach this curative pool was to be lowered by a rope through that aperture up there and he pointed to the hole at the center of the cavern's dome, some two feet in diameter, through which we could see the sky, and which originally gave vent to the heated atmosphere of the warm spring within. "'They say,' said Mr. Pepperell, "'that the Indians used to bring their sick to this mountainside and lower them through that hole into the warm sulphurous water, and they declare that not a single man ever spent a day and a night in this cavern that wasn't lifted out well.' "'It wouldn't have taken a day and a night to have cured me,' said the man from New Hampshire, as he stopped his nose and started for the tunnel. "'Any man would be fooled not to swear he was cured after being ten minutes in this oven, for before this passage was cut, which gives its chimney a draft, it must have been close, mighty close, in here.' "'It doesn't smell like a rose,' laughingly returned the judge as he shuffled on after us. "'But a man will stand sulphur pretty strong to get rid of rheumatism.' "'They say that this whole mountain has a substratum of sulphur,' remarked Mr. Pepperell, after he had taken two or three whiffs of pure air beyond the mouth of the passage. "'The Indians are poor theologians,' said the man from New Hampshire. "'They located their hell at the glacier. They should have brought it this side of the range.' "'I have always thought it strange,' remarked the judge, 
than a man with a knowledge of Milton should have connected sulphur with the punitive suffering of the race, when, in fact, it is one of the most potent of all curative principles. Perfectly adapted for purgatory, quietly remarked the man from New Hampshire. I presume that four men never enjoyed a happier week than we spent at Banff. We rolled leisurely over the fine roads that the government had constructed, winding in and out along the bends of the Bow River, running along the base of the gigantic mountains and through the cool forests of the firs. We explored with the curiosity and eagerness of boys the secluded places and followed the dim by-paths, not knowing or caring whither they led us, happy whether they conducted us to some noble prospect or terminated suddenly at some dripping ledge. We searched for curious minerals in the sides of the mountains, translated the geological records of the cliffs, and collected polished pebbles from the bed of the foaming spray. We slept at noonday under the pines, lulled to sleep by the falls of the bow, and fish not in vain for its noted trout in the rapids. We watched the storm-clouds vainly assault the monstrous mountains that lifted their heads majestically above the reach of storms, listened to the thunder as it bellowed in the gorges and rumbled down the ravines, saw the rainbows grow and shrink their arches of splendor and fade away, and at evening sat in the great angle of the veranda which overlooked the falls five hundred feet below us, and saw the round moon roll up above the fair home range, and whiten the valley of the bow with its silvery light. We admired the ample design of the commodious house, a veritable palace, with interior finish of native woods polished to a gleam, its wide stairways and galleries, the noble dining-room, with its lofty ceiling, which the judge pronounced, "'Fit to be a banquet hall for the gods!' and the large verandas that encircled the entire house, as if to invite the guests to enjoy to their fill the majestic scenery which stood grouped around it. "'Here!' exclaimed Mr. Pepperell. "'Here is a continental enterprise of which, as a continental man, I am proud. A year ago, and what was there here? A forest, a solitude, and out of that forest and solitude—' At the touch of courageous enterprise, this noble structure has risen with all its appurtenances of comfort and luxury, as in the mind of the dreamer a vision arises in the darkness of night. The only vision, said the man from New Hampshire, that while it delights the eye ever fully satisfied the stomach. A climax of civilization, remarked the judge contentedly as he accepted a cigar from Mr. Pepperell's case. A perfect climax of civilization. The dessert at dinner to-day made me profoundly grateful that I was not born a barbarian. Had you been, you would have civilized the tribe and imported a French chef, Judge, retorted the New Hampshire man laughingly. At the appointed day the scattered members of the party kept their rendezvous at the hotel. The house swarmed with guests, a cosmopolitan company in truth. The continent in its every section almost was represented, the nations of Europe and the islands of the seas were there. The flags of old England, of France, and of the great republic were fraternally intertwined. Science and art, poetry and letters, music, beauty and wit were joined in bright companionship. A program for the evening's entertainment had been prepared, and the judge appointed master of ceremonies. The stars lighted the world outside and within the electric globes flooded the house with their white radiance. "'Ladies and gentlemen,' 
began the judge. This is not, I will honestly confess, my maiden speech, and yet I find myself affected as if it were. I am embarrassed, not at the courtesy of your suffrage, but at the novelty of my position. A citizen of the Golden Gate, I find myself in the dominion of the Queen, surrounded by an audience representing almost every section of that empire on which the sun never sets. Every state and territory of the great republic and almost every civilized nation on the face of the earth. We, the citizens of the republic, moved by love of country and institutions which are precious to every lover of liberty wherever he is found, wish to hold a social reunion with that modesty for which we Americans are noted the world round. And we proceed promptly to appropriate this hotel and all the resources of entertainment in this establishment, including yourselves, surreptitiously inviled under the name of guests, that our elegance, your wit, and your beauty might add eclat to the occasion. This piratical proceeding we proceeded to legalize by a process invented by us Yankees known as the town meeting a process which has been wittily described as enabling the original New Englander to steal his lands from the Indians, become a rebel to his king, and change the commandments without doing violence to his conscience. At this meeting of my fellow countrymen I was elected master of ceremonies, a dignity which I did not obtain, according to a quaint national custom prevalent among us, without being openly charged by my competitors with having reached the lofty elevation by scandalous stuffing of the ballot-box. Here, amid these everlasting hills, in this palace of modern luxury, with the flags of all nations intertwined, emblematic of that peace which not only prevails in the Republic and its relations, but through the empire of the English-speaking race, and with an audience more truly cosmopolitan than I have ever seen outside of the official halls of government, we hold our happy reunion. We Americans are not formal, we are not exclusive. The liberties of refinement will rule the evening. Literature will be honored, music will be applauded, beauty will be admired, genius receive its acclaim, the banquet table be spread, and then Terpsichore shall dance to the music of the hours, till the flush of morning shall turn the icy pinnacles of the mountains above us to the color of the rose. There was just that Fourth of July swing to the eloquence of the judge, that rhetorical abandon, which suited exactly the mood of his fellow countrymen, and we all cheered him as none of us have ever been cheered since our class day oration when we electrified our sisters, our cousins, and our aunts with the flights of our eloquence. We all cheered him immensely. The man from New Hampshire, who had been a self-nominated rival to the judge in his struggle for the chairmanship, prolonged his applause as if, like a true American when defeated, he would triumph over his hated rival by the exhibition of his generosity. "'Ladies and gentlemen,' resumed the judge when the man from New Hampshire had subsided, feeling that he was the true victor. "'Ladies and gentlemen, I will first present to you Professor Blankton of the Continental College, an institution not yet erected, but which nevertheless stands completed to the eye of faith, on the subscription paper not largely subscribed to as yet, which he carries in his pocket. Professor Blankton will give us a recitation of an original composition prepared expressly for this occasion, called the two flags. 
"'That you may understand, ladies and gentlemen,' began the professor, as with a graceful bow he acknowledged the generous reception we gave him, "'that you may understand the location and the natural surroundings of this little episode of American-Canadian life, which I am to render, I will briefly describe them to you. Below the Fraser Canyon, the savage sublimity of which cannot perhaps be equaled on the continent, the Fraser curves to the right and sends its deep, strong, down-rushing current with a sullen roar against the base of a mountain. And he who stands in the curve below Yale and looks up that wide reach of water to where it rushes out of the gloomy pass from between walls of rocks which rise six thousand feet above it sees as grand a spectacle and as sublime a vision of river and mountain as he may find on the continent opposite this curve on which you will imagine yourself standing stretches a plain acres in extent lying enclosed in the curve of the great stream under the rounded banks of which when the water is lowest in summer stretches a bar of brown sand from that bar a crowd of americans who had broken through the vast mountains of california in eighteen sixty eight took in a few days more than a million of dollars of granulated gold from this fact it received the name of american bar a name which it retains to this day on the plain above the bar directly in front of the monstrous mouth of the fraser canyon were encamped more than six hundred of our fellow countrymen it is doubtful ladies and gentlemen if a rougher braver more reckless crowd were ever seen in british columbia they represented the frontier of the country that frontier which stands for exploration mad ventures audacious enterprises personal courage coarse bravado manhood wrecked recklessness of life and generous impulses in it every state and territory of the union had its spokesmen the dialect the personal characteristics the humor even the profanity of each section was represented by its true type many were old forty-niners men who had crossed the plains on foot rifle in hand when the east went wild at the news that gold could be had for the digging beyond the nevadas youth and age and middle life were there ex-army men blue and gray reb and yank worked as partners and starved feasted or gambled together as luck smiled or frowned some signed their name with that sign which stands with equal facility for piety or ignorance and others in the hush of evening sang the songs of their alma mater to the listening pines and silent stars many were ignorant of any grammar and others might have served as queen's messengers not only in european but in asiatic courts many were scarred with wounds received in battle or private fights all were armed and ate and slept with a pistol at their hips and while they gambled or bet heavily when in money or liquor nevertheless drunkenness was exceptional and fights uncommon a crude but effectively administered justice guarded property and life thieving was unknown at american bar it doesn't pay said the light-fingered dick to his partner who had learned a useful trade under the direction of his native state it doesn't pay in a community so damned ignorant that the court has only one classification for crimes and inflicts but one penalty 
still it cannot be said that this crowd of gold seekers were precisely the kind of men one would select for church membership and certainly more reckless daredevilry was camped that summer at american bar than could be easily grouped in any other spot on the face of the earth you now have the knowledge of the location and characteristics of the occurrence and i will proceed to give you the story of the two flags let these two flags go on like twin stars and equal courses moving it was the fourth of july the sun stood equidistant between the monstrous cliffs that made the walls of the black canyon pouring its rays straight downward upon the foamed whitened surface of the racing water on the plain in the elbow of the river stood the camp and on the bush cabins and old soiled tents the rays fell brightly and hot all the hotter they seemed to the revellers on the sand because above and around them as they looked through the heated air they could see the cold gleam of glaciers and the glint of ice against the blue sky the camp was in holiday mood not a man was at work in the bar to have lifted pick or pan would have started judge lynch that day they had struck luck at the bar and their mood was exuberant some were pitching quoits using small bags of gold dust for their quoits each caster risking the bag that he cast others were engaged in pistol practice the bull's-eye being a gold eagle at fifty yards the bullet that hit won the eagle some were whirling knives at banknotes and every tent poker was being played with a recklessness that would frighten a railroad magnet two men were pronouncing an oration on liberty at either end of the camp while a scholarly-looking man considerably exhilarated with something stronger than the inspiration of the poet was vainly endeavoring to pronounce the measure of a patriotic ode he had composed to a throng of uproarious auditors suddenly at the mountain end of the central street a throng of men appeared bearing on their shoulders a flagstaff with the halyards all rigged at their head marched hoosier jack who was loaded with lead at shiloh carrying a staff from which he waved a yard of bunting with its thirteen stars all faded and the glorious stripes sadly bleached frayed at the edges if the truth must be told and damnably out of repairs as banger harry asserted but symbolic still of liberty to man and the great country which stands for that liberty the world over ahead of it marched the band composed of a little snare drum two fifes and five fiddles playing yankee doodle with a celebratory movement and an earnestness of expression which more than compensated for the artistic deficiencies of the performance but oh the cheers and the yells that greeted that little cheap flag as it came down the street the emptying of tents the rushing of gamblers the pell-mell that ensued in the rear of those bearing the flagstaff the procession was formed and twice through the camp the cheap faded banner was carried and then in the centre the flagpole was set bunting knot tied to the halyards and up went the stars and stripes while every head was uncovered and the eyes of many grew dim as they gazed and as the flag went up and the breeze shook it out and the sunshine brightened the faded stars and bleached stripes a cheer hoarse and strong stormed upward like a roar of a tempest 
startling the goats on the crag and the fish-hawks at the mouth of the canyon, and Banger Harry, climbing to the top of some cracker-boxes with his six-shooter for his baton, constituted himself leader of the music of the occasion, and in his clear tenor voice, resonant as a bugler's call at sunrise, began, "'Yes, we'll rally round the flag, boys, we'll rally once again,' shouting the battle cry of freedom we'll rally from the hillside we'll gather from the plain shouting the battle cry of freedom the union forever hurrah boys hurrah down with the traitor up with the star while we rally round the flag boys rally once again shouting the battle cry of freedom whether it was the exhilaration of the occasion, the swing and sweep of the verse, or the thrill of pride that the symbol above their heads was theirs once more, or the magical memories of the old days before the war, we cannot say. But we simply record the fact that when the singer had reached the chorus and the great crowd of rough, bronze, strong men took up the refrain, Arkansas Cab and Mississippi Pete who had bored the old flag in twenty battles, joined in as vigorously as if they had been born under the slope of Bunker Hill. The song closed in a roar of sound which might not be designated by Thomas or Zarin as music, but which fully answered the demands of the occasion, and at a word from Banger Harry, every revolver left its owner's hip, and six hundred polished muzzles gleamed in the sun. Six follies followed the signal of the leader with a precision which demonstrated that they were more practiced in the use of the iron than in a chromatic scale. "'You fellows,' said Banger Harry, as he crawled carefully down from the top of his cracker-boxes, "'you fellows ain't much at singing, but you have all got the classical touch on the trigger.' It was in fact an exuberant and exciting crowd— a crowd which the least touch would have exploded for fun, patriotism, or deviltry. And it was at this unfortunate juncture, unfortunate for him, that out of his bush shanty crawled Bloody Edwards, a big, aggressive, red-faced London cockney, who had come through the mountains with the crowd from no imaginable reason, save sheer accident, and still remained with them because of tolerance on their part and excessive indolence on his for there certainly was nothing in common between this lofty-acting, boastful cockney from London and the free and easy reckless men among whom he was staying. A more boastful, swaggering braggart never breathed. The most offensive Briton was in him typed most offensively. His favorite superlative was bloody. It answered even the purpose of his loyalty, which was so excessive as to tax language to express, and gave him his name. At the very moment when the vast crowd was fairly boiling over with excitement and ready for any mischief came Bloody Edwards upon the scene, swaggering offensively and waving a small red British flag in his hand, planting himself in the center of the street in front of the six hundred exhilarated Americans. He waved the little banner flauntingly over his head and howled, "Hurrah for the flag of Hold England!" For an instant the crowd never moved. Each man stood silently in his tracks, and then with a roar came the rush. It struck Bloody Edwards like a landslide and swept him, as if he were a bit of debris, to the bank of the river. Then out of the roar lanced a voice, 
Naturalize him, naturalize him, make a Yankee out of the cockney. And six hundred voices took up the cry, for the humor of the idea pleased them. Ay, ay, naturalize him. He shall take the oath of allegiance. Make him swear by the stars and stripes. But the cockney refused to become a Yankee, refused point blank, and garnished his refusal by expletives known only to the slums of London. Curse the cockney, exclaimed Cambridge Jack. The fool acts as if he had a choice in the matter. And then he screamed, Dip him, dip him, cool him down in the Fraser. He shall swear by the stars and stripes or drown. And the crowd took up the words of Cambridge Jack, for the Cockney had no friends. He had not acted to make any, and surely no flag up to this time had ever had a less manly representative than the banner of England had found in the person of this boasting, swaggering, insolent Cockney, Bloody Edwards. And so the crowd took up the cry of Cambridge Jack, prompted thereto by the sense of humor and dislike of the Cockney, and yelled, Into the Fraser with him! Cool him down! Teach him manners! He shall swear by the stars and stripes or drown! And then the crowd gave one surge, and upward the Cockney was swung, and down to the river they rushed him, and into the depth of the cold icy river, that river that never was warm and never will warm until the elements melt, they plunged him. But underneath, and within the punk of his cockneyism, untouched by the rot of the surface, was a sound streak of old English oak. For as the big red face came out of the ice-cold tide, he blew like a porpoise and yelled again, Hurrah for the flag of old England! Down with him! Down with him again! yelled the crowd to Blarney Pat and Confederate Dick, who had him in hand, and downward they plunged him, down into the coldness of death, the glacial cold, and that river of glaciers which chills and whitens quick and sure for the grave. Downward they sent him, and again, as he came back to the surface, he feebly spluttered, Hurrah for the flag of Hold Hingland! By this time it was evident that bloody Edwards was sober, sober as a man who from birthday had never touched ale, and that it was not the reckless bravado born of liquor, but the bulldog grip which made Poissiere, Cressy, and Waterloo what they stand for, and held him to the line whose ghastly white men dread so stiffly an indomitable English grit that was in him. And this it was which won on the crowd, and even on the two men who had twice plunged him into the death-cold current, that current which never yet gave back to light of day a body that once touched its bottom. For Confederate Dick, as he looked into the big red English face that now lay drooping weakly on the bull-like neck, exclaimed in sheer disgust, First English fool, you won't give in!' Then up spoke Banger Harry as he thrust himself into the front of the surging crowd. Boys, the darn fool is of the same blood with us if he is beefly built, for his grit proves it. The red flag he'd die for owned the continent before the stars and stripes split it, and the two own the continent still betwixt them, and shall own it forever by heaven. Three cheers for the red flag of England, the old motherland of us all and suddenly out of the throats of the six hundred men who had swarmed over the border searching for gold, above whose head floated the little cheap fifteen-by-twenty bunting, with its stars bleached and its stripes all faded, 
there burst as hearty a cheer for the cross of st george as ever english gunners sent from the bloody english decks when through the smoke they saw their foeman's flag come floating down then out of the water they lifted the cockney and rolled him and rubbed him and twenty flasks were tossed through the air to the men who had him in hand then they took the flag cambridge jack was the man and bent it to the halyards side by side with the stars and stripes and they hoisted the two with loud cheers divil take the rag said blarney pad as he pulled lustily away at the halyards divil take the rag but the boy that won waterloo was born nigh killarney but this was not all for a strange thing happened strange enough at any time but doubly so happening at that very moment scarcely had the cheering died than along the river's farther bank there came a circling wind marking its progress with dust dead leaves and withered grasses which at its touch sprang upward into the air across the rushing river across the bar it ran its circling course jumped the dry bank and rushed across the bend and in its career struck full and fair the staff from which the kindred banners waved out of their fastings tore them and twined together blent as one sent them soaring upward through the sunshine toward the blue sky in the white summits of the canyon eight thousand feet above the throng of swarthy scarred and startled faces gazing at them thus in silence stood the camp not a sound was heard save the rush of water as it whirled around the bar or fretted along the shifting edges of the golden beach below spellbound and marvelling at such strange hap their jests all checked their rude talk silenced they stood at gaze their eyes fixed on the flags as they went up and onward lifted higher and higher into the blue still upward and onward they soared and not until they were to the eye but a fleck of colour not until that fleck of colour had touched the level of the icy peaks in the summit line of the snow not until the winds which pour forever over them had caught the flags and they were about to disappear borne on by the winds which flow forever round the world was that solemn silence broken but as the blended flags now but a speck of colour were about to fade forever from their gazing eyes the voice of banger harry rose strong and clear with the genuine yankee nasal struck clean through the words i'll be darned if god almighty has to join them two flags together the man from new hampshire was mightily stirred by this recitation and when he lifted himself from the chair and standing erect swung his white beaver over his head and cried hurrah for the flag of old england the motherland of us all the great veranda trembled to the roar of the applause which burst from the laughing cheering throng then music arose with this voluptuous swell soft eyes looked love to eyes that spake again and all went merry as a marriage bell the long wide piazzas made such an ideal ballroom as is seldom seen when youth and pleasure meet to chase the glowing hours with flying feet for above them the blue star-fretted heaven was for a roof and the free order-filled breeze of the mountains gave to the waltzers such air as eagles breathe beneath their feet the polished floor under the electric lights shone like ground of glass upon the hills and into the valley the moon poured its soft light while to the music of the band the falls far below added its steady roar a heavy monotone of power softened by distance 
into the solemn solitude of nature, into the undisturbed silence of ages, within the enclosure of mountains old as the world, whose summits were white with snow that fell in the morning of time, and had never melted. Man, the social man, had burst, erected his palace, spread a table of banquet, and summoned music and pleasure to the feast. The strength and grace of form, the gleam of silks, the flow of soft-toned draperies, the flash of gems, the loveliness of snowy necks and arms, the glowing cheek, the laughing lip, the buzz of happy talk, the harmonies of music were all here, making a rare, sweet, bright picture of human happiness. So passed the hours until the dawn gave rosy signal for retiring in the first American night at Banff ended, as it should, in a lovely morning. End of chapter 10